As always, Radcast Outdoors is made possible by High Mountain Seasonings, a Riverton, Wyoming company that's now available all across this great nation in a variety of places. Available globally, frankly, you can log on to highmountainjerky.com to order and check out all of their great products. They've got dozens of them. That's H-I-M-T-N-Jerky.com, H-I-M-T-N-Jerky.com. And for you Radcast listeners, you get a special 10% off option. You use promo code HMS10. That's HMS10 when you check out. They'll give you 10% off just for listening to the podcast. That's High Mountain Seasonings, a Riverton, Wyoming company. And at the end of the show, we'll get the High Mountain Seasonings recipe of the week, which, spoiler alert, is pheasant marsala. Again, that's at the end of the episode. Make sure you stick around for the High Mountain Seasonings recipe. Fish on. Hey, Radcast is on. Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. From the Porter's 10Cast Studio, here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of Radcast. I'm David Merrill. I'm Patrick Edwards. And today I'm pretty excited to uh, introduce you to our guest that we've got in the studio. We have Miss Jess Johnson, the wonderful outdoors woman. (laughs) Well, I'm excited to be here. I think this is going to be a good day. We're excited to have you. You are a, you're you're an outdoors woman extraordinaire, right? You've done some work with the Muley Fanatic Foundation. Mm-hmm. So let's start right there. How do you get involved with that? So I have done some volunteer work with uh, Muley Fanatic Foundation. I will say my my paid job now is with the Wyoming Wildlife Federation, but that all kind of goes back to I'm a adult onset hunter. Um, I didn't grow up in it. Grew up around it. Was familiar with it, but was never taught or taken uh, until I was about 20 years old. And I moved back to Wyoming from California, of all places, and met someone who was a very avid bow hunter and fell in love with bow hunting. And that was sort of the open door because I grew up in a ranch family that was very conservation-minded, grew up out of doors, and the hunting part sort of tied the love of outdoor spaces, the love of being outside, and then the love of wildlife and conservation all into one thing. So spent about two years learning um, and bow hunting and then realized that I could tie these all together in a conservation mindset. And uh, it started a really amazing journey that just hasn't stopped. <laughs> um, but yeah, I the initial introduction was through... Uh, Muley Fanatic Foundation and Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and just volunteering for these groups that were doing some really amazing things um, with stuff that I care about like mule deer and as I started volunteering and going to banquets and going to pint nights and starting to think about all the different uh, issues and policies that all these different groups were looking at and working towards um, I had this aha moment that I can hunt and I can take all of this passion and I actually can find a job that will pay me to do that. And hence, I ended up with the Wyoming Wildlife Federation, started with them as a public lands coordinator and have worked into a advocacy and legislative uh, liaison forum. So it's been a really wild ride and had Artemis, which was a women's hunting and angling coalition I was able to found um, with nine other amazing women. And all of this has just sort of come through in the last couple of years. And it's been a wild ride. Well, you're definitely getting to be very well known here regionally <laughs> for for your advocacy and your you know conservation work. Coming from 
you know, an avid family of hunters and fishers, both Patrick and I, you know, I started really young, just almost as an infant going. It was just never a, oh, we're going to go do this this weekend. It's just what we always did, right? Mm -hmm. And so I want to get, you know, as we go into this, kind of your views on coming into the sport as an adult hunter, you know, just because you guys notice some things and see some things. And I definitely want to get your perspective as a woman going on some of these things, right? But I think we can all agree in this room that conservation is the way forward. Yeah, I think conservation is our, our equal ground with folks that maybe don't understand hunting or don't agree with it or just don't know much about it. Um, as I was new in the hunting uh, world and coming into it, I, it actually took me a little while to realize, but I was surrounded by all these really amazing and passionate men. And I was telling my stories and having all these experiences and sharing very similar experiences, but I was realizing that all of a sudden I was the only woman around the campfire in a lot of scenarios. And um, it didn't, it never felt wrong. Like I was never mistreated or I never felt like I was judged in that. But I did realize that I had a voice that was a little different. Something um, was missing. Some, yeah. And, and, and it, uh, it kind of, made me raise my eyebrows a little bit. And I, I, you know, everything from like the very basic thing of finding gear, um, you know, walking into a bow shop and handing like three pink bows handed to me and me having to go like, no, no, no. Like I want to hunt with them, not like do backflips off of a horse with it. <laughs> like, you know, uh, and which would be really cool by the way. <laughs> but, uh, you know, everything from the gear stuff all the way to um, just experiencing it in a different way, all the way to the fact of like, you know, what do you have to do when you have a set of bibs on and a tree harness and you have to pee and you're not a dude? <laughs> like problems that um, you d I didn't think about um, until I had to. And then I started realizing um, that, and, and you know, coming from some time in California, seeing the hunting industry from a very different outside perspective where people were not okay with it and understanding that seeing what a lot of our hunting industry was putting out in front of folks to see and to digest and to look at um and then not explaining these images to someone that doesn't understand what hunting is and so it just it looks gruesome i get it i understood it i was like oh you know we're like maybe need a little bit of a facelift on our communications and it's not that it's wrong. It's just that we weren't telling the whole story. So we were, you know, I always say that like a picture is worth a thousand words, but in the instance of hunting, maybe a thousand words is too little um, because there's a lot behind it. And we're in a world and a culture that's uncomfortable with a reality sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I find it really interesting because you have a lot of people that they're like, that's not okay. You know, they'll see these pictures and they have this visceral reaction of, ah, oh, I can't believe you killed an animal. Mm -hmm. But then they'll go to the grocery store and they'll pick up a package of ribeyes and it's no big deal. But, you know, us being hunters and anglers and things like that where you know exactly where that meat came from. You know how it was taken care of. Like, and David knows this about me. I mean, I raise my own pigs and mm -hmm. take care of the process myself. Like, it's when you have that experience... It's so much different when you consume that animal and when you feed that animal to your friends and family. Family, yeah. I mean, it, it is a different experience. And so I'm impressed. I can just say, because, I mean, I haven't met you up until today, but the fact that you've come into this and, you know, started hunting and whatnot, I've always wondered, like, what motivates people as adults to come in? Because I'm like David. I, when I was a little kid, 
I'd be the guy, the kid in the truck while my dad's out, you know, walking a, a draw and looking for a mule deer or whatever, you know? So, I mean, I was around it at a very young age. So it's just intriguing <laughs> to me. It's like, wow, this gal started as an adult. Like, how does this happen? Like, you know, and so it's just intriguing to me. I think we're in a, we're in a maybe cultural era where people are, I mean, we're going, it's the f- locavore. It's the food movement right now. People are concerned with that. I know that's a big reason why people in their adult years are coming to hunting because it is a sustainable and very healthy, um, not just in the way of the meat, but a healthy pursuit because you have to be healthy to go hunting usually. Um, and it, it's, that's been a big push, you know, for me, yes, it, it's always the food, you know, if I'm not going to shoot something, I'm not going to eat. That's just, that's sort of my own ethics that I go by. But um, it was also a connection to a place. I think when you hunt and what I was discovering when I was going out um, with people prior to having picked up a bow, but I'd been on a couple bow hunts with them. What I was noticing is that um, a hunter looks at the landscape in a really different way. You know, you start paying attention to footprints and wind and forage. Like, you know, you learn about this animal and it was looking at the world through a very different set of eyes. And I liked what I saw in that sense. I felt like I was part of a place. I felt like I learned a place better. I came out with like a deep love of whatever landscape I'd been in, whether it was with meat on my back or not. And that connection So I think I came to it and was like, yeah, healthy food. And what made me stay was the experience of being out there. And it was, um, yes, the meat, but also more just the place. And I thought that was a really cool, and I think more and more, you know, uh, we have to be able to verbalize that. Um, I think adult onset hunters are going to be a better spokespeople just because they've had to explain to their family and friends that are like, where are you hunting now? Like, what's where'd this come from? We've already had like, come up with the right words to say it as opposed to being like, I don't know, I grew up in it, like, which is an amazing, um, and I'm jealous of that tradition, but I also think that, uh, it's nice to have people starting to talk about it, um, on a little different voice. Sure. And I think it's cool too, because, you know, you, there's so much out there saying this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. Um, and it's coming from people who don't have experience in it. And I, I know exactly what you're talking about when you're in the backcountry or, you know, for me, like when I'm out fishing, 90% of it for me is the experience of being out there. Like I love being outside. I love being in that environment. And David and I've talked about this when he's hunting, you know, he's talking about wind and all these things. Like when I'm fishing, I'm thinking about the storms that are coming that I got to outrun to get to this spot to get these fish caught (laughs) before I get clobbered by this thunderstorm or whatever. But we all have different things that we're thinking about. And I think that is a big part of it that people don't really consider is it's not just about getting the meat for the table, but that is important. Mm -hmm. But it's also the experience of being outside. It's the experience of being out in nature. And it's so good for your soul. Like to me, it's just amazing. And that's what I wish that we talked about more in the industry level. Because I think the way that we portray it right now, we talk about like that trophy shot, that 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 the the kill is the end all be all and we call that the successful hunt where i'm like my argument is is that i've had plenty of unsuccessful as far as like meat gathering but really wildly successful hunts in my book for like what i experienced and what i saw and just you know redefining what we call success um you know because the experience is worth all of it 
Yeah, I was with a really good friend not too long ago. It's been, well, it feels like it wasn't long ago. It's been two years, but we did this really long spot and stock on this antelope herd because they had been riled up, you know, and so we were crawling through these draws. And, I mean, we were right next to this coyote for, like, five minutes. I mean, right next to him. And he had no clue we were there. And that was one of the coolest experiences. Yeah, we ended up getting an antelope, but... Predator and predator. (laughs) What I remember about that hunt and about that stock was not just the antelope part of it. It was that coyote and just being right there with him. And I mean, he had no clue we were there. That was so cool. So I would go as far to say, you know, you get, you get these hikers that their one pursuit is to climb to this peak and take this epic photo. Right. Mm -hmm. And as a backpack primary bow hunter that I do that, right. I'm like, I'm going to hike to this epic and take a photo, but then I'm there for a purpose. Right. Mm -hmm. Then I'm going to look over and go, okay, I'm going to go down on this ridge and I'm going to go places where there's no trail, but there's people out there that say, well, you don't love animals, right? You don't care for animals. And I would say that I have a deeper respect, a deeper knowledge and a deeper love and care and concern for these animals than anybody who's against hunting ever will, right? Having spent hours and hours inside of elk herds or within yards of doe deer waiting Mm -hmm. for the right one, you know, but where you're watching nostrils flare and eyelashes blink and here they are, these are wild free animals. This isn't a zoo, this isn't a petting, you know, there's some mystical aura about it when you when you finally are in the presence of that animal it just it changes your whole perspective other than oh the sunrise over this lake and look at this hike I did yeah I think it's a you know I'm I would describe myself very similarly I am a primarily backcountry bow hunter um and that uh style of hunting really lends itself to the uh like suffer mindset <laughs> that when you get in there but th- but it also leaves it so you get into the place and and um I don't know I, I've always connected better bow hunting with the style of hunting because you just get closer it's just being closer to that animal um but the the care that you know and you hear it a lot as a hunter you know you, how can you say you love something when you kill it and my my argument is how could you kill something in good conscience without that care and respect and how could you feel okay about it because it does it is like it's it's hard to take a life and it still is for me I always have that little pang after you let an arrow fly and it 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 is accompanied with hope that it was a good shot with the knowledge that I've practiced for it with the work that's put into it and the respect that I will be eating this animal and taking every piece out that's possible but it's always going to, and I think if I ever shoot something and I don't have that, I'll know it's time to stop hunting. Um, but that, that, the argument that I have there is that, like, rather than worrying about explaining to people how we can care about this and, and you know, being, um, my response would be, I'm glad you care enough to talk to me about it. Um, because, honestly, this place would be a lot worse if, I'm, I'm okay with people that are really against hunting. That, it's frustrating and, you know, sometimes makes my eyes roll, but I'd rather live in a place that people care about wildlife so much so that they're against hunting um, than in a world that really just doesn't care at all. Like, so I would, I would rather me. have this than indifference. And I, I think we can, we could go for hours on this topic, mm-hmm. but, you know, hunting as conservation, people don't really understand that. And to, to put it in like a quick nutshell, right? A lot of hunting is is set up by biologists, right? Mm -hmm. We set these seas and limits, and we set these quota limits 
to manage these herds to optimum health and strength, right? And it sounds counterproductive, but there's a whole bunch of examples, and you can look at Africa. You know, there's a ton of great examples of two different similar-sized countries, one enacted and one completely appealed Mm -hmm. hunting, right? And the ones that enacted trophy hunting, that trophy hunting fees pays for the game wardens, pays for the land that the animals, you know, eat and graze on, and it, it creates an environment of protection. And those wildlife populations flourish whereas the populations in these countries that go to strictly no hunting those populations are non-existent you know we figured out this amazing sort of reciprocal circle where you know hunting can fund a lot of this work and then hunting also is the tool to keep these herds at optimum sizes the the thing i wish we would see more of is that um hunting is a tool for conservation yes um and i I, I want to see that expand um, because I want hunters to get more involved than just saying they pay for it. I want to see them at the policy level because I can't tell you how many times, I mean, I work in policy and I work in legislative and I am so often like the only hunter in a room and I'm a paid staff member. I'm paid to be there. But man, I would really love it if folks that weren't paid to be there showed up to their like game and fish meetings and the regulation meetings and the legislative meetings that are making laws that really do affect us at the ground level. And the, the, the thing that I have is that we are, we do pay for, I mean, massively the lion's share of conservation in this country. And, um, we're only four or 5% of the population. Like imagine what we could do if we were bigger than that. Like one thing comes to mind is as a waterfowler, you know, I have to buy a waterfowl stamp every Mm -hmm. year from, and that all that money goes straight to wetland conservation. 100%, right? So anybody that's a birder out there that's going around with a high high photography lens, you know, high zoom lens out there taking pictures of waterfowl, I'm going to ask them, you know, have you bought your waterfowl stamp? Because the ground that you're taking, you know, these wetlands that have these nice boardwalks and everything else, that money came from waterfowlers, you know? And so how... How do, how do we expand that out? How do yeah. we utilize that? I mean, I think wildlife watching, especially in Wyoming, because of our national parks here, oh man, it's a big industry. And it's an industry that is is paying a lot of our economy, um, especially in the Jackson and Cody area. I mean, you look at both of those places, subsist off of tourism, mainly for wildlife watching. Um, and if we could encapsulate that in something that could also give to wildlife management, um, that would be that would be a feat. I don't know what the right answer is. I know that I wish that I did. Um, but I, we, yeah. we don't have to go very far back in history to look at, you know, North American turkey, the mm-hmm. whitetail, the bison, the elk, to, to look at these different species and go, wow, hunting and conservation brought them back. Brought them back. And we have this movement now where we got to stop all that. And that's not the right way. No. And I, yeah, I, I think a lot of that is that, um, and, and this is sort of going into a We'll see if I can say this in a shorter term. Um, We could go on forever on this one. But, you know, as 4% of the population, unfortunately, it falls on hunters to keep hunting going. And we're so bad at communicating about it. And we're so, we've got an ego around it. It's a really closed-door, like, place to get into. Because it's an amazing supportive community when you're here. But it is so hard to get in. And it's it's whether it's finding mentors, whether it's anything like that. But the problem is, is right now, from the outside, 
you know, if you don't have any connection to the hunting world, it's kind of unfriendly to look in, especially as a young woman. And we're not doing ourselves any favors by just saying like, well, we pay for conservation and we do this and we do this. What we should be doing is being like, hey, like we realize, like, let me tell you the whole story of this hunting. Let me tell you about this. Let me give you something relatable here. And um, taking it upon ourselves, unfortunately, the onerous is going to be on us. You know, the anti-hunters aren't going to change their minds and it's going to be on us to behave better. And it's on us to, to make that, you know, like, I understand you disagree with me. Why don't we sit down and have a cup of coffee rather than sit and yell at each other across an aisle? Yeah. And so that brings me to my question. The same thing in the angling world. Um, we need more people to go fish. And so we talk a lot about recruitment of hunters, anglers, you know, so what would you say from your perspective is the key, especially for young ladies? I've, I've got three daughters. So what would you say if you were talking to me about, hey, you know, you need to get your kids into hunting and fishing. What would you say to people out there as far as what would be the key to get more people involved? I think, I mean, I think mentorship is going to be a big thing. Um, cause there are people that are going to get into it. And I know I have a couple of friends that came to it late and they did it all by themselves. And it was, I just look at them like, that's amazing. I have so much respect for that. Cause I don't know how I would have done that without the mentor that I had. Um, so I think the mentorship is a big thing, but it's also teaching people to be mentors because like when you start taking new hunters out or kids, especially you have to like check the expectations at the door and just realize that your job as a mentor is to, foster in them a love of place and a love of this activity however that is maybe it's you bringing hot chocolate along maybe it's you being you know and people have different like abilities to stuff suffer you know some folks some new hunters are going to go out there and they're going to hammer with you in the elk hills and they're going to walk as far as you are and da 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 da, da. and then there's going to be another person that's tired after a mile and has a blister and doesn't understand and you that person is equally there's a different way to see hunting and, and you just have to be like, all right, this is the hunt today. We're going to make this the best hunt possible. And even if it's just a mile and we end up with a blister and we see one deer, um, you have to make that day as good as the day when you have the person that can hammer with you 10 miles in and hike out. So I imagine you started out in the rifle realm for the first couple or just right into bow hunting. I actually um, bought my first rifle a month ago. Okay. (laughs) So I was very, I started right into the bow bow realm and it wasn't any, I've never had an issue with rifles. I've borrowed rifles. I've shot them. I enjoy going out and shooting them. Um, But the bow hunt was really, I came from a dance background. I was a ballerina. I did Irish step dance and archery is a bizarre similarity to a lot of the uh, discipline and the mindset that I found when I was dancing. And so picking up a bow, felt very natural and it just worked far better with who I was and I will always be a bow hunter I have nothing against picking up a rifle and shooting a you know late season cow or a couple doe whitetail but I will always be a bow hunter I have another question for you so (laughs) knowing that you have fallen in love with bows and shooting bows um, what are some things you would suggest like like I said I've got little kids like what would you suggest to someone like me who may want to get my kids into bow hunting? Like what would be a good place to start? Um, I think obviously, and I think uh, sitting at this table, there's three people that really enjoy bow hunting and I bet it's coming through on this podcast. I think people absorb passion when they see it. So I think showing them and talking about 
your experiences out doing that. I think being really frank and upfront with them can get them excited about that. And then getting them, um, even like the little tradition, traditional bows are so much fun to shoot. They are so much fun to shoot. And I, I started with a compound and I'm actually scared. I just bought my first longbow last year and, um, it's just a different feeling and it's fun. And, you know, for a kid, you can get them a little, a little recurve or longbow and they can just like wing arrows until the cows come home and it's fun. Um, and as, as long as it's keeping that fun part and then you can move into like, you know, the, the form of the thing and and the nice thing about traditional archery is it teaches you really great form and then you can move to a compound if you do want to do a compound or you can stay traditional and um, the form is there I would say that most people pick up a uh, compound bow and don't learn great form and then uh, have to unlearn a lot of bad habits (laughs) there's this you know quintessential joke of you know, every year, right before season, two weeks before, you get some somebody who wants to go man, woman, whatever. Two weeks before, walks in, oh, give me a bow. I'm going bow hunting. I didn't get a rifle tag this year, and I just every time, no, no. You, you know, I'm I start practicing with my bow early spring, getting ready for one shot at one elk in September. Yep, yep, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Is like, and that's and that's the one. You know, and and one would hope that you also practice with a rifle because that is equally as beneficial. You know, I'm never saying that you can just pick up a gun and go shoot something and be as accurate as someone that's been practicing year-round. I will say that with a bow, someone that does it year-round where it's part of your lifestyle is going to be a far more, I would argue, ethical bow hunter um, than someone that just wings a couple arrows at a target and goes, oh, we're good, and goes hunting. And I'm glad you brought that up um, growing up being around game and fish personnel, that was one of their biggest things was if you haven't practiced and you don't know what you're doing, don't even go out there with a bow. And because, I mean, I, I've seen it where you drive up and you've got an antelope with a mm-hmm. arrow through its neck and it's suffering. And it was because somebody didn't know what they were doing 99% of the time. And so you've got that animal that just walks around with a wound and eventually dies. And that, that's just a horrible way for an animal to go down. So again, practicing, but also when you're, when you're getting ready for that shot, taking the right shot, mm-hmm. knowing where your parameters are. And, you know, I, uh, recently was in the Northwest territories on, um, a lifetime hunt um it's still weird to say that and I had a shot at a mountain caribou that was right at 40 yards which you know in a flat totally broadside place is a shot I'm very comfortable taking but in steep rocky terrain with an animal that was new to me in a windy day I sat there and I watched that thing walk away and I, that was the last one we saw that entire trip. And I just like, but I, I had that, you have to make that decision. Um, and my, my parameters are going to be different than your parameters. You know, everybody's comfort level is somewhere else, but knowing where you're ethical at and knowing where you're not and making that call is something that is like, you have to figure out as a hunter. And as a sportsman group, I mean, there's a couple, couple keys I want to touch on there. You know, one is you might have, a 12-year-old girl go out or a 12-year-old boy and shoot their first buck and it might be a spike. Mm -hmm. You know what? You might have a 40-year-old guy go out and he's got one day to go with his two kids. He might shoot that same spike and we've got this personification of we've got to kill inches in this industry, right? And I'm like, no. You know, I've my absolute favorite photo that I have right now is me and my boy on a doe antelope archery hunt, right? He's got his little arm around my neck. (laughs) He's like, four, it's great. And I've got 
some inch photos, right? But that's not what it's about. And the other one I, I want to touch on is, you know, having come from the guide aspect and having guided clients, I so much more relish and, you know, and enjoy guiding the female clients. Because when I get the guy, it's bravado, it's macho, it's, <laughs> you know, they've never been on a horse, they've never been up this trail. Here I've been in and out of it all summer or multiple years, right? Mm-hmm. Know the horses in and out, know where these elk are, have a pretty good clue of what I'm doing and where we need to be. And they're always trying to one up me, right? But when you take a female client, you say, well, we're going to sit here. Okay. And when you tell them, hey, make sure you're, that other animal's clear of the shot, I've had female hunters say, well, I didn't think it was clear. That's why I didn't shoot. And I'm like, and they were wide open clear, but. but they the, made that choice. They yeah. made that choice. But I've had men, when it wasn't clear, take that same shot, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, it's a, I mean, and maybe that's a, I always hesitate to say it's a gender thing because I do know, like, I don't know. I mean, maybe it is. I think it's also a fact that, like, we are, we have expectations that are different. You know, we've been raised in a culture that, like, doesn't make us have a lot of bravado and ego and everything like that. And so, I mean, we were, it's even just, like, the nature versus nurture kind of thing. And um, we've all been nurtured to maybe not have that big old ego. Um, Not to say that we don't sometimes, but. uh, (laughs) But on on the gear aspect of this nature versus, you know, I'm seeing kind of the hunting demographic that the older white males are aging out of this sport. You know, Mm -hmm. they're they're leaving quicker than they're coming. And 15, 20 years ago, when my mentor said, here, get a bow, let's go. And I got hooked and I, I haven't been able to put it down since. There was very limited clothing options, sight options. It was just, you know, boot options, especially for teenagers just super limited and there was nothing for females just nothing right even when my wife first started getting into it she's wearing my old hand-me-down coveralls years ago there was nothing less than 10 years ago there was nothing but today i mean there's a there's a half a dozen companies that are almost solely women specific hunting clothing and and how has that helped you well i do i have a i remember um i think it was four or five years ago I went up to one of the backcountry hunters and anglers rendezvous and they have you know there's like the Sitka booth and the First Light booth and um, all of these great companies that now have a women's line but didn't then and I was sort of new and gaining my ground in this hunting um, sort of industry and was really passionate about this gear discussion and walked up and was like I have a thousand dollars to spend if you can show me one women's piece and no one could come up with one. I had a lot of like, oh, like these pants are like unisex. I'm like, <laughs> I'm a woman. You can't have unisex pants. Uh-uh. <laughs> um, and but you know that following year, both of those companies, and it wasn't obviously due to that, but like they had, they both told me like we have a women's line. Like it's being developed this year. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. And now um, the the availability of of good women's gear especially from first light and sika and i think proas has a really amazing women's line well they're all women's line um is is so exceptional to see because it is top of the line it's as good it's like getting the really great ultralight outdoor gear that's going to be waterproof warm scent free all of those things um and it is as good as the men's gear because before that you know i was wearing hand-me-downs or i was wearing a women's line that was like kind of like stitched together with like pink thread that it would have sequins on the like hem of it and you're just like what what are like what forest are we hunting (laughs) and like um and and if that's something 
I would never knock that, but it was the fact that the gear wasn't quality, that it was falling apart, that I was cold. Rodeo camo is what I call yeah, it. Yeah, and it makes it so much harder because if you go out and you're cold and your feet aren't comfortable and your pack doesn't fit, you're going to not stay in that. Like, So if we want to keep folks other than you know white males that fit the perfect like gear line in this industry we have to build gear to keep them comfortable because man there is nothing less fun about freezing um when somebody else is sitting next to you warm with good gear yeah that's not fun at all and i do want to go back to something you talked about you talked about this hunt that you went on (laughs) so tell us more about that because i want to hear kind of the story of what you did it's a story um so about a year ago uh I don't even know how to start this. It actually kind of starts two years ago. Um, I told a story at a conference that is was not a hunting conference about losing a bull elk that I shot and stood up in front of maybe 250 people that didn't hunt or didn't know much about hunting. Um, and I would say there was probably a couple of people that didn't agree with hunting and told a story about shooting a very large six by six elk here um, having a very good shot on it. it was like 10 yards away and I lost it I couldn't find the animal I spent five days looking for it couldn't find it beat myself up and down the mountain I had these amazing experiences with other hunters that came out and helped um, and ultimately at the end of five days a different hunter found it and I went back in but I couldn't take the meat it spoiled I had this you know moral thing of like do I take the antlers and ivories and that that didn't feel as right either but I ended up doing it so I told this story as a story, um, sort of an offering of vulnerability. <laughs> and in those five days, I mean, having been there, you, you run the emotional gamut of every emotion in the book. Oh my God. And I'd covered 40 plus miles and grid work. And like, I mean, I just, the, the Onyx, you know, the GPS mapping system that I had was almost colored in for the amount of like how much I'd like covered ground in this 500 yard radius. Um, what, had ac- what had happened is this elk had gone uphill, he'd gone across a marsh and he died 436 yards he was actually there were footprints from us looking for him 36 yards from where he was and we just didn't find him and he'd probably died maybe god five minutes after I'd shot him um just didn't find him and used this story told this story um and it ended up uh Wyoming Public Radio picked it up um Human Nature Podcast picked it up and the story went pretty big they ended up coming back to that same conference the following year and using that story in a storytelling um, on like how to tell a good story. Apparently it was good. Uh, I think a lot of it was more just the willingness to be vulnerable and be honest about um, some of the feelings that go through into that. But uh, this young woman who was new to hunting heard that story and I was introduced to her at that conference last year. And she started telling me about this elk story that she'd heard she's like man it was really cool like I really identified with it and I was like in the middle of this conversation like this is awkward this was me and as soon as we like figured that out um we just had these amazing discussions and hit it off right away and she was this very she's oh she's Caitlin is this passionate powerhouse in the guiding world um for she like guides veterans uh to work on like PTSD stuff in the outdoors on these amazing mountaineering trips all over the world she's this just like phenomenal badass in the backcountry and she was new to hunting um so through this conversation she tells me about the fact that she went to sheep show with her outfitter boyfriend um who was ex-boyfriend at that point but uh bought a 40 or $100 raffle ticket and won 
the Northwest Territories doll sheep and mountain caribou hunt as someone who had never hunted before and won it and won this incredible package. And um, I know people that put like 40 grand in. Yeah. I mean, yeah. just like, and she just had bought one ticket and won. And uh, she's, you know, was like so excited and, and unsure of what it was going to like be. And we talked a lot about it. And, you know, I, we were talking about like women doing these kind of things and normalizing that because it's, you know, it's still like, oh, it's a woman went and did what? Yeah. Um, rather than being like, oh, no, this is just normal. That's a hunter. And so she, <laughs> we talked and we connected. We had this great conversation. And then I was like, well, you haven't really hunted before. Do you want to come mule deer hunting with me two weeks from now when I'm up in Cody? And we'll just go hike out and glass around. And she was like, oh, this is great. So met up in Cody, Wyoming, went out on a general tag, last day of season, literally closing day. It was one of those Hail Mary things. And um, stumbling around the hills and we were talking. We had some other friends with us. And uh don't see a thing like I was like well this is just kind of hunting there was just nothing out there that day and we were sitting down and then decided to walk back to the truck and I walked down a little further from the hill and I turn around and like Caitlin's off with one of our friends Paul's and they're like giggling and talking and then she walks over and gets down on one knee in front of me and I was like really confused what was happening sits there hands a bullet up to me and says will you be my plus one on this Northwest Territories doll sheep and mountain caribou hunt? And I just like went to pieces because <laughs> like I, I, you know, I, I, she'd known me two weeks and um, she told me that like it, it was a lot of like someone that does a lot of work in conservation that knows what this hunt means, that is also a woman. And that was like, she, that was her vision for this hunt. Um, and then her work world hit in, in a big way, and it turned out that she had this really amazing opportunity to guide elsewhere during that hunt, and she gifted me the rest of the hunt to give to someone else. Um, and so she sort of pulled out of this. It was an incredible like reciprocity, and she some of the stipulations were you had to have been part of the Lesson One Club um, for this sheep tag, uh, and you had to have been part of it for more than two years. I want to touch on all those tags are donated. Yeah. And all that money goes right into sheep conservation. Right into sheep conservation, yeah. And so all those raffles, all those, you know, and there's just hundreds of thousands of dollars are raised at these kind of things for sheep work. Um, And so had to find someone and the stipulation that Caitlin gave me is like, I still want it to be a woman. I want this to be like a two, like a female, like adventure because I think that's just an amazing story. And I was like, oh yeah, like this is great. Um, So I sent out sort of a very ambiguous text to like five people that I thought may or may not have been part of the less than one and uh, got one answer and I was really excited because this was the woman I was like I know she's there and I I really want to give this to her I just have to make sure that she's part of this less than one and um, Bridget Noonan who is the marketing director for First Light and has been a really great friend um, responded and then I just didn't say anything for like two or three weeks because we were figuring out how to gift this hunt and the paperwork and all that kind of stuff to her and then Caitlin was like I want to call her though and Caitlin had never met Bridget so Bridget got this cold call that she like sent to voicemail three times. <laughs> she was like, I don't know, this like weirdo. Somebody's trying to give you a sheep tag and you're, you're diverting him to voicemail. Well, and she was also like in work meetings and things like that. And Caitlin called me and she was like, Bridget's not picking up. And I was like, hang on. So I sent Bridget a text and I was like, the next 
phone call you get from a number you don't recognize, step out of the room and pick it up. And Bridget's like, what? And all of a sudden I was like, this is an emergency. Pick it up. (laughs) 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 Um, And then 15 minutes later, Bridget calls me and she's like, is this real? And I was like, yeah, uh, you were just given a doll sheep tag for the Northwest Territories and we leave in August. This was in like May, early May or probably early April. And uh, the fun part was is that uh, we got to meet and see each other again at Rendezvous in early May, and uh, Caitlin and I went and got down on one knee and gave her a bullet and just kept it going, and um, Bridget and I. So this is the very long-winded lead-up. Um, and the reason that I love that story is it's a it talks and it gives a little bit of, like, validity to the community the fact that somebody came in this was a one like a hunt that we won um neither Bridget and I are ever going to have the kind of income that will ever afford this hunt uh without having won it um the fact that it was gifted from a woman to another to another and then we went on this incredible um experience um it was just it was all about this story. Because just getting to the Northwest Territories is an adventure it's, in oh and of God. itself. It's six, five flights, six flights. Yeah, we took a, we left from Ketchum and we went Ketchum, Idaho, which is where Bridget lives and where First Light is. And we went to Seattle, Seattle to Edmonton, Edmonton to Yellowknife, Yellowknife to Norman Wells. And then from Norman Wells, we took a float plane in uh, to base camp. And then from there, we hopped on a 17-horse pack string for the uh, remainder of the 12 days. And, oh, man, yeah. It was, was that your first time on a float plane? Yes, yeah. I was, I mean, both of us, I was like a little kid in a candy store. I think even the film that we, um, and the, the amazing thing is that because of Bridget, First Light came on. They sent a filmer with us, so we have the whole thing. We have a film around it that came out. It's called Annuli. You can find that on thefirstlight.com. Um, and it's what I loved is like, yeah, you can just see. I think Bridget and I are just like these giddy. We're smiling the entire time, and I think we're just in this like, oh my god, this is real. You're like, I'm sweating and I'm bleeding and I'm like tired, and oh my god, this is real. Um, and that's that hunt though. You know what we really wanted to portray in that is that this this yes it's like doll sheep like that's the hunt that hunters dream about why is that and i think it's because of the terrain i think it's because of where you have to go to find these animals they're at the top of the mountains and they're like when you look up and you see the most rugged peak and you're like no way i'm getting up there you're like that's where the sheep are that's where we're going Um, and i think that breeds this like epic adventure that goes into this and the fact that these sheep are um like they make a living up there they live there in these places year round like in the winter in basically the arctic circle we were so close and um it that kind of just bred this like epic hunt but it's not so much where you have to be this phenomenal hunter because i think you can go if you're a new hunter and be fine you just have to be an outdoors person you have to be able to survive like that feeling of being day five and six where you have been covering miles and miles and miles and so many feet of elevation you just have to have that mental fortitude to be like yeah this is this is type two fun i'm currently suffering and i'm having the best time of my life and i'm going to keep going and i would say you know there's there's whitetail hunts back east that are way more difficult to Mm -hmm. to see one right there's there's mule deer and elk hunts in general areas out west that you know when you're on a sheep hunt because of the exclusivity and the the limited tags you're going to see sheep. It's not, you don't have to be this great, you know. Yeah. And 
we, oh man, did we see sheep? This is actually like, apparently this is rare or I've been told this is rare. We shot, we saw 27 rams in our first like seven or eight days of hunting. Um, and of that 16 were legal and, uh, we were with this. So the outfitter that gave that tag is Gaina River Outfitters. And um, Harold Grindy, who owns Gaina River, is like the quintessential mountain. He's like the guy that you look at and you're like, you look a little bit like Sam Elliott if Sam Elliott was a hardcore doll sheep hunter. And that's how this, the whole affect of this guy is. And his guides are amazing. Um, our guide, Dane Schott, was 22 years old. And uh, this amazing person that, 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 I mean, there was not a day we didn't see sheep, but Harold's rule, so Northwest Territories legality is any three-quarter curl. Um, doesn't matter how old they are. It just has to have three-quarter curl, which means the horns come all the way around and a three-quarter curl. Um, but Harold rule and the way that the outfitter runs his camps um, is he would like you to shoot a 10-year-old or better. So at least full curl. Like at least full curl. Although there are some, you know, there's there's been full, like three-quarter curl that are 11, but mostly when you see a full curl, you're like, now we're going to talk about a sheep that we can look at. So we would end up, um, you know, you'd see them a certain mile at the top, you know, top of the mountains. You have to get up there and you get within 400 yards so you can age this ram. And you age them by counting the annuli, which are the rings on the horns. So think about like if you cut a tree and you see the cross sections of a tree. Sheep are very similar, except you can see it on the outside. So you look at the rings on the horns and there's a way to age them. And, you know, we'd spend days getting in on eight-year-olds. We saw so many eight-year-olds and we'd get in and we're like, oh, man, not quite there. And, and for the non-sheep people, you know, an eight-year-old would be like like your eight-point buck, right? Mm -hmm. Or your five-point bull. It's not your your you know, past breeding age, full mature adult male. It's kind of the sub-adult class. It's your college student of uh, yeah. sheep. Yeah. yeah, you know, they're old enough to be mature, sort of. <laughs> um, and so looking at the eight-year-olds, and, and the reason that Harold wanted 10-year-olds is he wanted a sheep that had, you know, had full-time spread genetics to be in full mating age for a while. And the fact that, like, doll sheep, like a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old doll sheep is an old sheep. Like, they're getting towards the end of their life. Um, and so we would get in and do these amazing, God, we were just in country that would leave your jaw on the floor. It was, it was scary hiking. I mean, it was, it was technical walking in a big way, um, where we were on shale fields and boulder fields that none of it's stable under your feet. And as Bridget puts it, serious no drop zones where there were like times where like you fall, you die. There's not like anything else that happens. And the, um, I think, you know, there's some people that go sheep hunting and they say never again. Right. And there's other people that go and that's all they want to do. I'm the second one, <laughs> which maybe, I'm not sure what that says about my survival skills, but uh, definitely the second one. And um, Day six, we got in on a sheep and it was, uh, Bridget uh, had the sheep tag and she made a great, like took a couple shots to get it down. It was a very steep uphill shot, um, but she kept her shit together. And like, act, that's hard to do as a hunter. She kept it together in uh, three shots, had him down. And when we got to him, he was 12 years old and he was a big, he was a nice sheep. He was broomed on both sides and 12 years old and had lived a really amazing life in that place. And, um, having experienced all of this really foreign country for me, you know, Northwest territories of Canada is about as remote as you get and having that culminate and then being able to, uh, learn these animals and have one down and, 
you know, butcher it and pack it down and eat it over the fire with these people. And then we still had another six or seven days to hunt and we were caribou hunting at that point. And, um, it was just, wow, it was an incredible experience. Um, but it was something that like, it really showed me, you know, you go, I didn't, I think I was so new into hunting and I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking that doll sheep was ever something I would be able to hunt because it just wasn't an option. Um, that I hadn't gained a love for the species. I had, I just like, I was coming into this as like, oh yeah, doll sheep seem cool, <laughs> which is, and I came out of it, like I'm, I'm sitting here in a sweatshirt that has a sheep skull on it. Um, and, and it's, it breeds a fanatic in someone when you get to go and experience something like that. And I know now on, I will be, you know, I will be buying those, you know, tickets or I will be donating money to the, to the organizations that are working to save these places and these animals. And, um, you know, I do that already in the state side for a lot of the mule deer and elk, but man, um, the, the sheep love you kind of need to experience because you just got to be in those places. But it sounds incredible. Yeah. Um, especially, I mean, just the place that you got to go, not a lot of people get to go up there. So, yeah. I mean, that alone is incredible. Not to mention the the hunting that you were able to do. So. Yeah, the Northwest Territories have about 30,000 permanent residents in it. But the Northwest Territories also take up, like, what is the entire, like, Rocky Mountain West, essentially, size-wise. Um, and we were in the McKinsey Mountains, so um, when you look at a map, find Norman Wells, go a little west, and we were in the McKinsey's, and there are these really wild snow-capped peaks that are, I mean... I, I think I kept talking to Bridget. I would turn around and be like, our like lower 48 version of wild is really quaint compared to this. Because, <laughs> you you know, here we're 150 miles from a road. You have to take a cub. Our, our, from our last camp back to base camp was a 45-minute super cub ride. Um, and that's how, like, how far we'd gone in from base camp. And then base camp was a hour-long float plane ride to Norman Wells. And on both those plane rides how many other people or, or inhabitants or improvements did you see oh on the ground I mean only once you got outside of the McKinsey's where you'd see a little bit down on the flats but like I mean it was a real thing when you're like I'm the you know or we the group of us are the only people for the next 50 to 100 miles and you almost get the feeling that you're the first person to have ever been there, there's yeah. no signs there's no trails there's no improvements you feel like you are the there's no lights. God, you get up in this, you know, the super cub, you know, and you don't realize how much um, until you get into an airplane and you're like, oh, look at all like the square fields and the round pivots and the roads and like the really obvious human lines on this landscape. The float plane right in, you hit the McKinsey's and there is not one like straight edge or human created anything for 45 minutes. And you're just looking down at this like gnarly country with like sheep at the top of mountains and caribou trails all over this place. And, and the caribou trails are not from point A to point B. They're like these spidery veins on a landscape. And um, yeah. So having been on successful and unsuccessful trips all over the place, whether backpack or, or road camping, there's something very primal about the successful ones coming back, you know, usually tired, exhausted, late, but starting that fire, you know, getting a stick. So ex explain that to me a little bit. Oh, ours was, uh, for this hunt, actually is a bit of an adventure story. It did not. Um, we, so the sheep we saw late in the day, and we'd already been hunting for probably seven hours. 
and we didn't get over to the sheep and it it came down around 5 30 um, and there's only about four or five hours of darkness in the northwest territories in the time that we were there so we were like okay this is fine um, but we we're pretty far in we were in four hour horseback ride in and when we tied the horses up at the bottom of this like and then we were another you know couple i don't even know how many miles in um, left the horses shot the sheep and had to get back down to the horses and you know, shoot the sheep at 5.30, get it sort of all butchered and packed up um, with a minor uh, knife accident. <laughs> but, uh, not good. Not a place to have a knife accident. <laughs> yeah, not a place to have a knife accident. Uh, I will say that as someone who has a wilderness EMT and has done a lot of, like, uh, training in that, get your wilderness first responder before you go on a sheep hunt. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it was... Fortunately, not Bridget or I. Our guide had a slip of the knife, um, and it ended up in taking a, an hour or two to stop some bleeding. And um, you know, it happens. Even the most, you know, Dane is the most professional person I have ever been hunting with, and it happens. Um, but so it took a little bit of time to get the sheep fully butchered and skinned and um, parted out and on packs, and then we started heading down and. Um, it is a gnarly, it was a gnarly hike in. It was the kind of thing where you have trekking poles, you just put one foot in front of the other, and then like halfway down, as the sun is setting, it starts raining. Um, and so you're on this shale and these slick boulders that are not stable. And when I say not, like boulders the size of cattle that are shifting underneath you, and you feel the whole mountainside move and th- sort of shift down. And then, you know, it's it's it is one of those places where you just take your time and you put one foot in front of the other and you don't make a mistake and you have, you know, sheep quarters on your back and you heavy and we're hiking down and, uh, Dane and Rick, who was our uh, cinematographer that was with us, Rick Smith was amazing, um, are out in front and then it's Bridget and then I'm, uh, coming in the back and Bridget takes a step. And when you have like weight on your back, um, was like watching slow motion because she went just a little off balance and then I watched the pack pull her off balance and she just kind of somersaults off this cliff in front of me and all I I like watch it happen in slow motion and then I hear like oh like I need a little help (laughs) (laughs) um and I look down and she's like where's behind me so I can like put my feet down I was like nothing don't let go um and was able to like pull her back up and she I don't know how she she's the most athletic person she managed to like tuck and roll where she didn't knock her rifle didn't knock her head and didn't knock the sheep and she managed to just sort of somersault and catch herself um with a pack that had a sheep hide and a skull on it and picked her up got her you know ended going down but like that's the kind of like I'm setting this up because it took forever to get back to the horses and we got back to the horses and it is a like pitch black and pounding rain and um, it's a four-hour horseback ride in a place that doesn't have trails so you kind of have to pick your way and some really nasty footing on horses not something you're going to do in the middle of the dark like you're just that's just not smart it was asking for a broken leg of a horse or just an accident to happen and so uh Dane had uh, anticipated that that may have been something that happened, um, but not to the full extent that it did. We did have a couple mountain houses in um, some saddlebags. What we didn't have was a tarp. (laughs) And so in the middle of the Northwest Territories, in country that we'd seen three to five grizzlies a day in, uh, we laid down on hunks of sheep with every layer of clothing on, ate half a mountain house and tried to sleep for five hours 
And it was, uh, I mean, like straight on, I mean, we were on this like loamy, lichen-y sponge ground that's not dry and it's pounding rain. I had on like long johns, pants, puffy pants, rain pants, and the same on the upper layer, um, but that's it. And so you'd like turn over and like rivulets of rain would like run into your neck and it's everyone's soaked and, but we're all exhausted. I mean, you're so tired by that point. But having the, the, you know, high, high technical oh. good gear, at least, you know, you, 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 well, you weren't we comfortable, survived. but you survived. And, and, and that gear was seriously a game changer. Um, yeah, if we hadn't had that, I don't, we would have been hurting a lot more. And, um, it, you know, was sleet, snow, slushy rain kind of thing and cold. And <laughs> so we didn't eat the sheep that night. Uh, we slept on it. Literally. There's like, <laughs> I mean, like quite literally a there's a photo, um, I remember rolling over, and Bridget had her pack, which had the sheep hide and the skull, and I, like, rolled over and was nose-to-nose with the, sh- you know, sheep nose, and Bridget sound asleep, like, on the on the ram's horn, and just totally, you know, because we're exhausted, and um, I had, like, the quarters uh, just right above me, and um, we'd put the horses around us, so if a bear came in, at least the horses would let us know, and um, we literally like slept on hunks of meat in the middle of grizzly country and woke up the next morning, did some jumping jacks, giggled, uh, really laughed when we tried to get on horses with packs that were about as heavy as we were, um, which was a struggle. And finally just like, was like, you know what, we're going to go find a ditch and climb up on, um, cause it's really hard to put your knee to your chin and get on a horse with a heavy pack. Rode the four hours back to base camp and came in just looking like wet, drowned, like dogs that were sitting there and um the camp chef and it wasn't full base camp it was a strikeout camp but the camp chef who is dane's wife uh walked out and she was like were you guys successful and you know dane is is uh comes in he's like no it's like <laughs> just, just, just being a jerk. <laughs> just being, it's like no, and then like Bridget and I were like, he was like, let's like tell him no, and like neither Bridget nor I could contain like just we were just like beaming smiles. We're like, this is, we can't. I'm sorry, we can't play it cool. Yeah, we were. Um, and then we got there, and uh, one of the other guys that came out with us used to be a sheep guide, um, and he was. We actually had two sets of. It was Dane, Bridget, and I, um, and then Brant. Uh, Brant Shutter, who uh, guided this other guy, Chuck, and his daughter, Kaylee. Kaylee's 15. She shot a 10-year-old ram on day three. It was awesome. So it was a really cool, strong female camp. But her dad, Chuck, used to be a sheep guide. And uh, he was super cool. And he had, uh, he was like, oh, did you guys bring the sheep ribs? Because everybody was like saying, like, that's what you do when you shoot a sheep up there. It's like tradition to cook the ribs over a fire. And so we're like, yeah, 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 we brought them. Um, And he's like, oh, great. And he cooked these sheep ribs over a fire where he just like blackened the bone side and then flipped it over and like slow cooked the rest. And it was just like sheep fat dripping down. It was literally the best meal I've ever had. And then we ate sheep ribs and I slept for like 14 hours after that. But it was, it was exactly that, that, that meal of having this incredible, everything culminated and, and, and we, you know, had this gnarly night out and all of this fed into the story of this. And then to sit and eat those sheep ribs and laugh about it and tell the stories that we saw and talk about the incredible country we were in or the porcupine that startled the horses on the way out or the grizzly bear that we saw like less than um, like half an hour from leaving our camper. Like and that she stuff was coming doesn't, in for us. 
that stuff doesn't translate mm-hmm. on film or in photos or you you have to be there to you know that camaraderie and that that misery yeah you know having been in your exact shoes more than once you know the the trips that are oh we went out one day we got a big one and we went home the next day that yeah that's great whatever <laughs> They're kind of the ones where you're like that's great but also yeah. Let me tell you about this time that I, you know, struggled <laughs> in the Northwest Territories for 10 days and yeah. slept on sheep meat. Those on ones. Sheep meat. Yeah. <laughs> 10 out of 10 would recommend for a pillow. <laughs> but um, I yeah. guarantee you'd rather go back on the 10-day miserable hunt than the go on a one-day successful hunt. It is. It's the, you know, it's the type 2 fun. It's the fun where you're like, whoa, this is like a lot of work and this is like super uncomfortable. And then you get back and you're like, that was the best time I've ever had in my life. Um, and I hope, you know, the film talks a little bit about it. We actually did write, um, our field journals were turned, uh, we turned into a story f- for Modern Huntsman, um, that we'll be actually releasing next week. Um, so right around Thanksgiving, but, uh, Modern Huntsman's this great publication in this year, or this volume is an all women's volume. So it's all women's hunting stories. Um, and so our piece is called Ovis Dolly Dolly, which is the scientific name for doll sheep. And it's basically just a transcribing of our field journals, um, which is pretty funny because, like, a lot of the inserts or, or little excerpts from it are like, oh, my God, I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> like, I'm How did so, I get here? Am I going to live? Am I going to live through this? But also, this is so amazing. I don't care if I do or don't. Um, Obviously, yeah. you slept on sheep meat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So how many pounds are you pulling on your bow? 65. Yeah. I, uh, I started... When I went to buy my first compound, I couldn't even draw a 40-pound bow, um, which is, like, fine. And I just had to, like, work up into it. And um, just in the last two years, went from about 55 to 65 because I wanted a little extra umph there. But um, it took, you know, nine years to get there. And, I, you know, you, as long as you're accurate, you can be lethal. You don't have to pull a 70-pound bow to Most states, I mean, you got to check regs, but 40 to 45 is legal for deer, and yep. then, you know, 55. And some of them, I mean, you got to check like your state. Like moose and elk. Yeah. I mean, it's just pound. You know, at this point, I'm going to be like 100 if I ever draw a moose tag in Wyoming. So, like, <laughs> uh, yeah. So the elks, though, I, I just felt like I needed a little more, and I felt like I could, and I worked into it, but it did take some time. <laughs> And it's it had to have the right bow. Um, I have a short draw. I'm about 25 inches, um, probably more realistically 24.5, but no bows are sold in that unless they're like children's. Um, and so having that, I have a Bowtech Rain 6, and I love it. Um, and it was one of the first bows that was not a women-specific bow that had a short enough draw for me. And um, it was that that's what buying that bow is where I was like, now I'm going to bump it up because I can. So a lot of the women's bows didn't go high enough. <laughs> so I'm going to be a little self-serving. How are you uh, packing that bow on the horse on that trip? <laughs> that was actually really funny because when we, um, they only guide about, oh, maybe one or two bow hunters a year. Uh, and usually they're backpack hunters. Um, but this hunt that we won was a horse packing hunt. And so it's not that you don't also have a backpack. It's just that you ride in further on horses, and then you have to hike your butt off still. And I want to explain the, the terrain just a, just a touch more, the lower terrain. You, yeah. you did good on the shale, but that lower terrain in that bog and, and marshland and in the, in the brush and the willows, it, I mean, it, the best way I can describe it is take a trampoline, put it on a hillside, turn a sprinkler on underneath it, throw three or four sleeping bags on the trampoline, and put a backpack on and try and walk and on it. And walk through that. Yeah. It's, that's, it's just, 
impossible. It's, it's, oh, and it's, you know, with, when you're on horseback, it's, uh, these horses were incredible. They were so sure-footed. And even then, you know, you're in this gnarly, like when you do hit trees, they're tight, um, or they're, you know, nothing's cut back for trails or, you know, you're crossing rivers. And so you have to have like very, you have to be self-contained. You can't have yard sales happening. Um, so your backpack has to be pretty tight in there. Um, and it's helpful if you are not any wider than the pack boxes, <laughs> um, because sometimes it, well, if you are, you don't pass through. Um, so show up and I have this bow and, you know, the, all these pack horses have like rifle scabbards because they're used to taking rifle hunters. And so they have rifle scabbards, but um, Harold was really upfront. He's like, we have not figured out a way to put a bow on a pack string yet. Like it just hasn't happened. We haven't figured out a good way to put a bow um, on a horse. So he's like, you're going to have to carry it. And I was like, oh my God. And on top of all of this, um, they were a little bit short handed on horse dude horses. Thankfully I grew up riding before I could walk I was I've been a horse girl I've always been a horse girl and I was like really upfront I was like I'm great with horses um if it helps put me on a greener one and they said great you're riding hot wire (laughs) (laughs) okay I was like all right okay um so I'm thinking I'm having this like moment where I'm like "Uh oh like I have to carry my bow in my hand and I'm on a green horse or you know he's he's not young but he's green he's he's a horse for a guide not usually for dude hunters um i hate dude horses though they're (laughs) so slow and they want to just follow another horse so anytime you want to strike out they won't i i can't ride a dude and i will tell you i i fell so in love with this horse like i would have if i could have figured out how to buy him and ship him home i would have taken this horse home he was amazing um the most sure-footed animal i've ever been on in my life and a little bit of a knucklehead and very like green in some ways because he just was used he was used to getting his way um but fell in love with him that aside though was like having this like i don't know how to get the bow ended up figuring out sort of to jerry rig it onto my i have a stone glacier pack so it has a lot of outside buckles and got it and had a couple iterations of it where i started with it um, sort of landscape like so side to side like looked like i had wings um and then uh kept hitting trees at that point where I was like knocking limbs and I'm just like stressing out because when you do that with a compound, you're like, Oh my God, I'm knocking, like I'm going to mess up the camp timing. I don't know what I'm going to do. Like this is going to be horrible. And I'm going to shoot a try and shoot a caribou and it's not going to work. Um, and so then I tried to figure it out and went vertical with it. And then thankfully hot wire short. So we went underneath all the limbs with that one. Um, but then I rode a couple tall horses like that and I was scraping the tops of the tree. Yeah, it was, it, it, I never found something that worked perfectly, but I figured out how to get it to work for that trip. But I will say, um, and I know where you're going with this cause I came home and you told me about this product that you're creating and I was really pissed. I didn't have that in the Northwest <laughs> territories, but, uh, yeah, it was a, there is no way, right, well, or maybe there is now, but there was no way that I knew of on how to get a bow on your pack that wasn't buckled in. So, like, my problem was, like, we'd see a caribou, and I'd have to, like, bail off the horse, pull the pack off my back, unbuckle, like, six different straps to get the bow out. And then, you know, by that time, like, you have, you're just, it's, like, full yard sale. It's, it, you know, there was just gear exploding off of me, and I was just like, whatever, I'll fix it when I get back. And so that's why you're going to own a bow spider now, huh? That is why I'm going to own a bow spider now. Yeah, I took one look at that today and was like, yeah, I missed out. <laughs> it's phenomenal. Like, when when he had first talked to me about this, I was like, 
so explain this. And then he told his story about missing a big elk. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. And then I saw him actually doing it. And I'm like, oh, it makes that sense. works. So for the for the listeners out there, there are some YouTube videos. And you can check it out on bowspider.com or, or our Facebook page or Instagram. So Yeah, man. And if you're doing any kind of horseback hunting, I mean, even not horseback hunting, but especially horseback hunting where you really need to have um, control of your control horse, of have your, your hands free. Yeah. And be able to like pull it off your back without having to like fully dismantle a pack. So we did a whole bunch of trials this year. My brother had one on his backpack. And one day he just, he switched backpacks and he didn't take it. He's like, I'm just, and halfway through the day, he's really mad. He's like, I'm tired of carrying this bow. Sick of carrying this. I actually, um, I was realizing I was getting from, because I've never, I was never someone to put my bow on my pack. Like I'd either throw it over, like it just like rested on my shoulders or I would carry it. And I was finding that I was actually creating like some joint um, issues in elbows and wrists from always having this like four pound, five pound bow in my hand. And I wasn't sharing the load. So I was like just right handed carrying it because I was that was just the easiest way to grip it. And um, so now I've like been like, all right, got to figure out how to get on the pack again. And yeah, I, I did love the putting it on the pack for this hunt, but it was really frustrating when I had to get it off and you have to take your pack off and do all the buckles. And I was, yeah, there was some swear words that were certainly um, said through that. And even in hiking hunts, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I like having both trekking poles now, right? Yeah, trekking poles are game changers. I used to make fun of people in the in the so early nineties. You know, they had their fanny pack, their water bottle, their little toy dog, and they're hiking up this trail. And I'm like, "We well, need those trekking poles." Here, here I am on a, a scout trip or whatever. I've got a full five day pack, and I have no trekking poles. I'm like, "I don't need those." They're, I don't I don't leave the house now without my trekking poles. This Northwest Territories hadn't changed my mind on two things that I was fundamentally against prior to it, and trekking poles, poles and Crocs. <laughs> Bridget and I were like, what? We have to buy Crocs? No. And then we have a pair and now we're, I think both of us are like, damn it, we're team Crocs, I guess. I, I, Gators <laughs> is one I would add to that. I yeah. pretty much Gators, go. that you didn't have to sell me on. That one I'd already been sold on, but the trekking poles, it was very much that. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just the balance thing, the, especially with weight. Oh man, with weight, it makes a difference. And good gear is expensive. You know, I, I have this program where I invest in one quality piece a year, mm-hmm. you know, just because it's, it's highly expensive. But, you know, my, my first adventure of sleeping out sheep hunting, I didn't have uh, puffy pants and puffy coat. I had, I had the good raincoat and rain pants, so I was waterproofed, but I didn't have great insulation. And we, just the same way, we spent Flipped the night out, out and I, I thought I was going to die. Yeah, the puffy pants were, uh, those are such a luxury. They are so, and I, they're not a luxury. They're essential if you're going to, like, survive out there. But it was, they were a game changer. Because if we hadn't had those on under our rain gear, I think it would have been, a, I mean, it was a miserable night already. It would have been a really miserable night for us. Yeah, so, you you would have been freezing. Yeah, we would have been hurting. Um, on, on the safety note, anymore now, even in my just day pack, even if I'm just going for a, a mile hike from the truck, there's, my you know lightweight rain jacket and pant my lightweight puffy coat my lightweight puffy pant because you know what if i were to fall down sprain an ankle or you know harvest something or decide i get out there a mile and need to go or maybe the vehicle doesn't even start and i'm in a remote place right i can put that puffy pant puffy coat on and i'll i've gone with people now who don't have that and we get that storm you know come in and uh-huh. i can just You're put like, all that uh-huh, on and this is uh, nice yeah. oh are you cold over there bummer <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, 
I, that that brings up something that I've I've always like struggled with because you know you're like oh like I want to go light like I don't want to have this like 40 pound pack all the time but you know what like I've never been like oh yeah today's gonna be a short hunt every time I say that it's like the night that I have to spend out on the ground and you're like oh yeah it's just gonna be I'm just gonna go a mile from the truck and you like look down you're like oh god I'm five miles in um and so looking at like having a pack that has your basics like it doesn't you may not spend a comfortable night out but you can survive a night out and um any like the way that I like to hunt now I mean I'm like I want to have a bivy I want to I do want to like have that and it's worth the wait for me to have the luxury to be like you know what tonight I'm not going home I'm just going to stay out and you know chase these elk in the morning or you know get in on these deer early um just sleep out here and um it's it's made me a more successful hunter but also made me really appreciate good gear it's made me a gear snob for sure but it you can one thing you can do especially in these type of hunts where you've got the large predators you know you really need to be in a buddy situation oh yeah and you can then split you know half the tent half the stove take one spotting scope not two right you can kind of lighten the load a little bit by sharing gear amongst two people but there's a few items that no i'm not sharing yeah 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 i would and i i you know with our experience with the little knife incidents in the uh, Northwest Territories, I don't care how short of a hunt you're going on, you better have a full service, like good first aid kit. And that doesn't mean like a big one. It just means one that's very tailored to things that happen hunting, whether that's like cuts or sprains or, you know, whatever that is, have have that tailored to you. One of the best ones I've seen is take an Nalgene bottle, an extra one, Mm And just pack your own first aid kit because all the kits you buy, you know, half the stuff I don't need don't isn't need relevant. Or you it's can big, fashion bulky. from other gear that you yeah. have. Yeah. But take an algae bottle and vacuum seal, you know, put everything in there, vacuum seal it, and then put it in an algae bottle. It's That's brilliant. Actually. It works great. Yeah. The algae bottle is really good. It's in the bottom of your pack. It just lives there and you know it's there. And then if you really use it, you got an extra water container too. Yeah. I think that's what I like about that. And I have like a. I don't know. I call it like a, maybe it's a possibles bag. <laughs> it's a little uh, sort of satchel kit that has everything from like the butcher kit that I have in it to like gloves to um, an extra hat and a headlamp kind of thing. Also, they were teasing me for having two headlamps in my pack. I used both. One is still in the Northwest Territories. It came off of Bridget's head when she went uh, head over heels into the hillside and it went down a crevice and it's just going to live there now. So. So one of the those all, two headlamps. One of the all nighters I did, you know, uh, packing an elk out. I, uh, I, I now have a rule of there's two headlamps and a spare set of batteries mm-hmm. in in the backpack. Well, there was a headlamp in that backpack, but it just got dark so quick when we worried about grizzlies. We just started getting out of there. But mm-hmm. the next morning, I found the headlamp in my bed. And that night, you know, hiking from six p.m. dark till midnight you trip over every stick and stone and yes i was following people in front of me with headlights so it wasn't like i was completely lost but yeah it makes it's a game changer yeah and the batteries is always a big thing because it never fails you know you have a headlamp stuffed in a pack sometimes it can turn on or it can you know maybe it's cold and you just run through batteries faster or you know there's always the inevitable i try and like over prepare um so like i'd rather have like the extra i will carry the extra weight of batteries and not use them and be okay with it <laughs> but yeah it's um that that's certainly the possibles bag is 
it's an important one. <laughs> so drill down your gear, really, really go through it and see what you need and what you don't need. And there's there's so many there's so much info out there on, you know, I'm not gonna sit here and say you've got to have this or don't take that because everybody's got a different need and tailored for. I've never, um, and this was something with this NWT hunt that like Bridget and I had started a gear list, you know, four months prior to it and just uh, talked to other sheep hunters, other people that have been on this hunt, talked to the outfitters, like, and, you know, and the outfitters sent out a gear list as well. And I don't know what, like Bridget and I just didn't absorb the fact that this was a horse pack hunt. So we were like, I, we were like really prepared to suffer. We were like, all right, we're going as ultralight as possible. And we're going to be eating mountain house for 14 days. Got this. Let's go. And then we get there and we had, uh, so usually you fly into base camp and the outfitters, you know, then take the hunters and they go through their gear. And as we understood it from the outfitters, most times there's a lot of gear that gets edited out in this time. <laughs> yes. So they bring in the, the horse pack box and you get one panniered to fill, um, one pack box to fill. And Plus you can have a backpack that you're wearing riding the horse, right? So, so you kind of get two. So you kind of get two. So the funny thing is, though, is they come in and they're like, okay, you get this box. And, like, Bridget and I look at this box and we're like, oh, my God. Like, our stuff doesn't even fill half a box. Like, and they were like, who are these women? Like, we're like, we didn't know. I don't know. We forgot that there are, like, large thousand-pound animals that are going to carry our stuff. We thought we were doing it. Um, and so we had, like, really edited down and worked really hard on packing right. And, you know, thankfully to First Light, like, our gear was top of the line. And um, <laughs> so we, like, you know, have all this room in our pack boxes and are like, all right, well, I guess, like, so my suggestion is you go on these hunts um, and you have all this room and you go ultralight, bring the right stuff, bring your guides a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> we forgot to do that and we were all kicking ourselves to do it but uh we you know we get out there and this is the first time I've been on like eight day backcountry hunts where I've been like oh man I wish I had this or I wish I didn't I didn't need this this was the first hunt where I was like I packed perfectly and I've never had that before and it was like the first success that that whole hunt was successful just by the fact that I packed perfectly like we didn't even have to have seen a doll sheep and I would have been like yes we did something right but uh, yeah, that make, making that list, you know, and 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 knowing what you need and having, like, go test it. Don't ever take new gear, ever take new gear, especially not new boots out. Um, I had, a, I was really, I, it's the first time it felt really prepared and did it right on that one. But that'll likely never happen again. I'm always gonna forget something. I was having nightmares. I was like, what if I get there and I realize I forgot my hiking boots? Am I going to have to do this whole thing in Crocs? Like waking up in the middle of the night, like, oh no. Rechecking gear and rechecking gear. Yep. It's, yep. you know, and it takes, it takes years of just trial and error. And I do like this. I don't like that. And like I said, it's, it's very individual, but mm -hmm. there is kind of a, a basic overall list out there that you can start from. So switching gears just a little bit. What is your favorite meal to either go out and procure and come home and, and prepare or that you have while you're out there and don't say mountain house <laughs> not mountain house it's never mountain house <laughs> um i well i mean the are you thinking like favorite favorite backcountry meal or favorite meal from a hunt so currently i'm uh you know my my favorite meal at the moment is pheasant marsala it's pheasant mm -hmm. season i've been getting a few pheasants good. and we're putting it on the uh, it was on the last episode so you can get on there and get the recipe and 
got to listen to that one. So (laughs) do you have something like that where it's just your go-to, you know, Patrick's has got got a smoked fish one. So let's hear it. I I am a real big fan of lingua tacos. I like tongue. Um, And I've... Whether it's elk or deer or antelope or elk, deer, and antelope, um, lingua tacos have always been like my, I, I don't know what it is. But I love them. Um, and it's always been my favorite to cook. But it's tongue, so it's kind of hard. You don't get a lot when you do get it. Is there any tips on preparing it, cooking it? Um, my favorite way, and it's actually pretty easy, is you kind of so you have the tongue and it has the taste buds on it. It's really strange looking to start with. Um, and you put it in a crock pot and you sort of cover it up to, and I, you can do broth, you can do like part broth, part water. I always throw some whiskey in there um, or tequila or whatever you wanna do, just add a little bit in there um, and season it as you would. I usually put like some cayenne and salt and pepper and stuff because it's a Mexican dish and having a little spice is good. Put it in the crock pot and you cook it and four to five-ish hours on that medium setting. Um, and basically what you're doing is you're just getting it, it, this sounds so, it sounds so unappetizing, it's so good. You're getting it to the point where you can peel the tongue. So you have to peel the taste buds off. So it's actually like peeling, it looks feels a lot like peeling an orange. And once you peel that outer layer of the tongue off, it's just this incredible tender meat that falls apart in your hands. Um, and you just kind of shred it, cut it, as you can, you put get little soft uh, taco shells. You can make your either homemade guacamole or buy it. Um, there's great guacamole recipes out there. Um, fresh cilantro, fresh onions, fresh cheese, and do the taco. Um, put it together, a little slice of lime, and it is to die for. Um, but the lingua taco, people leave. And I my, the second, the part that I like waffled on is that my truly favorite meal is, is usually the heart. Um, but... That's so like, that's almost more of a. I don't know what I would call it, like a like a tradition, M- more than just a meal. It's like something where where it's saying thank you, and you're eating this part of the animal that's sort of sacred feeling, um, and so you don't cook it. I try not to cook it with anything that's too human. So you know, just like very simple, cut it into slices, a little salt, little pepper, and eat it as it is, um, and you know, pan fry it or whatever in that sense but uh the actual meal like putting together is the lingua tacos and that's just phenomenal and it's a reason to pack more meat out of the field don't ever leave tongues they're amazing mm-hmm. and if you don't like them other people do <laughs> bring them out of the field well now we know somebody who really <laughs> likes them so <laughs> yeah you can find me i'll take all your tongues <laughs> well jess i'm we we could probably go for another couple hours and i would love to have you back and just just yeah, go absolutely. over more well, I'm really happy to be here, and um, yeah, any time to talk about hunting with other people that love hunting. What was the name of the film again? Annuli. Annuli. A-N-N-U-L-I, and you can find it at First Light, so F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E dot com. Cool. Well, now I know I'm going to go watch it. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much. You. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on. Yeah. And now it's time for the Radcast Outdoors Recipe of the Week. Made possible by High Mountain Seasonings, a Riverton business. Check out their latest seasonings at highmountainjerky.com. That's H-I-M-T-N jerky.com. H-I-M-T-N jerky.com. And use promo code HMS10. That's HMS10 
for 10% off your next order, High Mountain Seasonings. So in one of the last shows, we uh, shared one of my favorite dishes of all time, and it's pheasant marsala. And it's actually, uh, the, the hardest part of this dish is, is acquiring the pheasant for the pheasant marsala. But it's pretty simple, pretty quick recipe. You're going to take and uh, breast out your pheasant, and you're going to get a couple ingredients. The, all these ingredients will be on the website in the notes, so if you guys want to you know, follow along real quickly. But you're just going to take and breast those pheasants. I like to uh, actually flay them out a little bit and take your hand or your palm and kind of flatten them so they're all at even thickness so they cook very quickly. You're going to you know, get some uh, butter, put it in the pan, get that butter nice and melted and hot. You're going to throw the uh, pheasant in there on each side just very quickly. You just want to sear the outside. We're talking 30 seconds on each side. You're going to take that out and let it rest. And then you're going to reduce garlic, mushrooms, and rosemary. With uh, You're going to let that reduce till the, gar- the uh, garlic and the onions and the mushrooms are all kind of caramelized a little bit. Then you're going to pour about a cup, cup and a half of Marsala wine in there. And then very quickly throw the uh, the uh, breaded breast right back in top of that. Just, just swirl it around, give them a, maybe a minute. You know, you want them cooked all the way through. And then uh, you're going to take that out, garnish it with some parsley, put it on top of either mashed potatoes or rice, serve it with a vegetable, and it's it's delicious. Eat it right fresh. And you're going to take the, uh, the remnants of the pan, and scrape that marsala, all those mushrooms and onions and put it right on top of the breast. That is my absolute favorite dish is the pheasant marsala. Radcast Outdoors is recorded in the Porter's 10-cast studio in Riverton, Wyoming. It's hosted by David Merrill and Patrick Edwards and produced by me, Jared Anderson. To help the show, please subscribe, rate, and review to Radcast Outdoors on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a friend who may be interested in the show, please let them know about it. For more Wyoming podcasts, like 10Cast on Facebook or visit 10Cast.County10.com. For more Central Wyoming news, you can visit County10.com. Visit the show's sponsor, HighMountainJerky.com. That's H-I-M-T-N-Jerky.com. And again, that special listener promo code is HMS10 for 10% off your next order. To contact the show, email 10cast at county10.com. David and Patrick will be back with a new episode of Radcast Outdoors very soon.